Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One. My guest today is Shandy Durth, and today we're going to talk about something that happened recently. As for last year, we're going to talk about COVID nineteen. And I want I want to ask you, for the for the lack of a better word, is it exciting kind of to live through such an historic era that we do right now? I mean, that's a great question. As an epidemiologist, we've studied outbreaks for you know all of my career. And so it's somewhat exciting on both the good side and bad side to be involved with this. Um, I'll be happy when, see, when we see the end of this, just like everyone else in the yeah. world. Do you, how, do you think people would study this 100 years from now, look through your papers maybe and go through that? Uh, this is what happened during COVID-19 and, where, when there's an, when, and there will be a new pandemic when there is, there's a new one coming out. Yes, I think we've got a lot of lessons learned. I mean, this is the first time in our lifetime that we kind of shut down the world in response to a pandemic. Mm-hmm. We're starting to see mental health impacts of shutting things down, environmental impacts. We've seen a reduction in pollution in some places where everything gets shut down for a while. I think we've got a lot of things to study and we've got a lot of lessons learned that will come out of COVID. And how did you come about studying COVID in the first so, place? When COVID first happened, I happened to be teaching a graduate level infectious disease epidemiology class in Indiana University, and we had planned to open up every class to talk about the outbreak of the week. Well, you know, I couldn't have planned a better topic for a class as a worldwide pandemic, and so obviously we ended up talking about COVID a lot, and I had a couple of medical students in my class, and I also had an infectious disease physician in my class who had come back to school to get his master's in public health, and so that was also useful in the class class because we had people who were dealing with patients real time. So we were able to hear directly from them each week, you know, how the emergency departments were filling up, how the ICU beds were filling up. As far as researching it in the beginning, it was just such a flood of information. We got a lot of news reports out of um, some of the national news sources. There's a website here in the U.S. that we use a lot for infectious disease reports. CIDRAP, it's the Center for Infectious Disease um, Research and Policy. It's out of uh, the University of Minnesota. So that's a website I've used for a long time. And then eventually the Johns Hopkins University website became available that showed us the real-time counts on a regular basis. So that was useful. And then at Indiana University, what we did was we actually organized a group of faculty members and researchers who volunteered to read um, journal articles and, and new publications on a regular basis and gave us all a short synopsis of it because there was such a flood of information. No one had time to read it all. So that was a great quick snapshot for us to get an update on a regular basis of what the new information was, what we needed to follow, that sort of thing going forward. 
Now, the most that most people seem to go with it, the story of how this spread is just, of course, a famous story with a bat, but it has to be more than just a bat, right? It's, do you think we ever will know the truth about how COVID got really released? And should we, we buy might, the story with a bat? We might not ever know. And I know there's been some um, speculation that maybe this was some sort of lab accident or lab release. Um, but in the history of time, most of these outbreaks do happen from a virus crossing over from an animal into a human. So it happens in nature on a regular basis. Um, what was unusual in this situation is that that virus was able to move from human to human to human. And so that's how we ended up with the outbreak and the eventual pandemic. So it's very possible it really did happen um, with contact with another animal. And then we ended up with the pandemic. Again, that's another reason why animal health surveillance is just as important as human health surveillance. It's kind of that one health concept. Uh, We're definitely not siloed, not separated from animals. And so we need to have good health surveillance in that population as well. Uh, Was this close to the research lab? I'm not a conspiracy theorist myself, but is that why people think, could this be a laboratorial as well? That that could possibly come from this laboratory in Wuhan? that most, a lot of people think, think it seems to be? I mean, a lot of the early studies that uh, WHO has done, it doesn't indicate that it was. It's not saying that, that it's impossible that it came from the lab, but we know it's not unlikely to come, honestly, just from an animal into a human. It just happens. That's kind of the mm. concern around some of these live markets. You've got animals and humans kind of squished together in close quarters and close contacts, um, and viruses can jump from creature to creature, basically. And um, now I, I, I want to ask, is there, what is the biggest difference between COVID and, we started about mentioned a few, but what is the biggest difference between COVID and the Spanish flu right now that we can see? So, you know, influenza is a different virus. Um, Spanish flu or the 1918 flu was from an influenza virus, and this is a coronavirus. So two different viruses is what we're looking at, but in much. Um, Are they similar at all or do we see similar symptoms happening here? I mean, there's some similar respiratory issues that go into both, but coronavirus is, from what we've seen, has caused all sorts of other issues that we don't typically see with influenza. I mean, we sometimes get some gastrointestinal issues with coronavirus, with um, influenza, but we saw a lot of that with coronavirus. We saw circulation problems with coronavirus. I mean, this COVID has kind of broken a lot of rules that we've seen with other viruses, respiratory viruses like this in the past. And at one point, there was kind of a push to not consider this just a respiratory virus because we were seeing COVID attack other parts of the human body. Um, That hasn't really happened yet, whereas influenza has really maintained most of its work on respiratory systems. So that's the fear with influenza, whereas COVID, um, you know, has caused other issues besides just respiratory. So we see this new variant, variant, variants going on, and it's, it has not been an easy year for Delta and uh, coronavirus. So, uh, what can we see? Did, can we see new symptoms arriving, new variants, other than a third or fourth, perhaps, variant coming out? So, uh, with the new variants, we don't have enough information yet to see if we're seeing new symptoms. What we what we're seeing with Delta is that people with Delta seem to be a little more likely to be symptomatic with. Um, coughing and sneezing and so that helps spread the virus that much more whereas early on with alpha with the early variants of coronavirus we were seeing a lot of people who never had a symptom so when we were doing the surveillance testing that's how we were able to determine up to 40 percent of people with um, covid in the early days 
didn't report ever having any symptoms at all. And we're not seeing those kind of numbers now with Delta. So people are definitely um, sicker. The viral load is heavier. And we think that's probably helping spread the virus. And I want to go back one year from now. Well, we didn't know anything about COVID and it's just started to come to Europe. And do we see, because, and I want to reference the Spanish flu again because it's the re- most recent pandemic we had other than COVID. And in, in the Spanish flu, people, government downplayed how dangerous it really was. And it seemed that certain governments, I'm, I'm, I haven't followed Asian countries or other other but two countries specifically that I've been following in a little bit UK and the US when Trump was still president and they down really downplayed I didn't really they went into lockdown but they still seemed to not care as much as let's say Norway did which I think did a brilliant job where I'm from and we did a brilliant down and taking it serious enough to lock down and we have had very few symptoms because of it so yeah, has history kind of repeated itself in that sense that we not of governments, but Brazil as well, kind of downplay this how dangerous it has been or for us. I think, unfortunately, what we saw with this pandemic is that sometimes it's been politicized, which is unfortunate because the virus doesn't care how someone votes. And so, I think um, again, that's another lesson learned. I don't think. Um, sometimes leaders were as transparent as they should have been as to how deadly the disease could have been. Uh, Communication should have happened earlier with some of the states and countries. And so I think going forward, that's something that we need to pay more attention to. And we need more data sharing across countries as well. I was impressed at how quickly so many countries stepped up and started sharing data. And I think we need to work on that going forward. Because again, this won't be our last pandemic. We'll see another pandemic at some point. And so we need to we'll see another one within a lifetime or we think we'll be lucky enough. Uh, you know, I, at this point, with uh, climate change and other issues, I would say that we'll probably see another pandemic in my lifetime. I would be surprised if we don't. And I just want to say 2009 H1N1, that was actually considered a pandemic because it hit um, a certain number of countries. And so we've had other pandemics um, over the last 100 years since 1918 flu. It's just the 1918 is the big one that we've all studied. So we, there was an influenza pandemic, I believe, in 1957. Um, and then again in 2009 with H1N1, but again, not nearly the scale that we've seen with COVID. So this is best compared to 1918. And that's why I wanted to compare this to, because it's the most, it's the biggest one we had. And 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 mind my exception, we have another world war going on at the moment. Right. But, but but I want to ask, what did some countries? And I want to again congratulate my own government on this for they. I think they did a brilliant job during this pandemic. And what has countries like Norway, New Zealand, Australia, to mention a few, done right in the situation? What did we do to? I mean, it's obvious, but you know what? What did we do right compared to some of these countries? Well, and again, I do have to commend Norway and the other countries who shut down things, you know, as soon as they saw cases, um, because that really helped prevent a lot of cases, a lot of mortality. Um, I think what we saw in a lot of other countries was there was uh, such a push to have a balance between keeping businesses open versus controlling Mm -hmm. the virus. And so we ran into problems with that. I think um, a lot of countries did a really good job of ramping up testing and making testing readily available, doing more surveillance work. So I think other countries really 
gave a lot of resources to their public health department so that they could have that sort of response. So that's great. I, I just saw Australia has um, shut down some parts again because they saw another case. And so you really have to um, act and be preventative early on because being reactive, it's almost too late sometimes in some of these situations. So it's great to see some of the prevention that the other countries are taking. Mm. Um, what, what like countries like Brazil and U.S. and Britain, what could they have done differently in this case? Um, I think here in the U.S., we've been kind of bumpy with the the testing. Testing still isn't readily available in the school systems here in the U.S. There's been such a push to get kids back in school, but we're not doing regular surveillance testing. Or if a kiddo gets quarantined, that kid needs to get tested to return to school. And right now we're seeing delays again in, in getting testing results. So it might take four or five days to get a testing appointment, and then it could take another two or three days to get the result. Well, at that point, you're almost at towards the end of your quarantine period anyway. So in order for us to be successful at having people back together, we need um, vaccines available for the children and we need better testing. I'm, I'm surprised that a year and a half later, we're not doing a better job with our testing right now. How do you feel about country, sorry, not countries, but states like Texas and Florida opening up so, so that they open up so quickly? Um, unfortunately, I think we saw opening that up that early um, led to more cases Um, other states did a more uh, phased approach, and I think that was the better approach to take. So they opened up small pieces at a time just to see what kind of increase in cases they had. Um, I think going forward, if we were to have this again, I think a phased approach is the better approach to take versus just flipping on the switch and reopening everything all at once. So we talked about lockdown a little bit now. And what about the Dustin? I'm not anti-mask or anything, but... Does the mask, I want to know how much does the mask help prevent getting COVID? If you, if everyone's wearing the right kind of masks, it can greatly reduce the transmission. I mean, we've seen that in the classrooms here in the United States. Um, so the schools who have opened with the mask mandate in place, those numbers have remained much lower among those kids. The schools that opened up without a mask mandate in place, we're seeing a lot more cases in those schools. And so what we're seeing now is, a lot of schools who didn't already have a mask mandate at the beginning of the small semester, semester, they're starting to go back to mask mandate. Um, and so, again, we recommend a three-ply mask for the kids wearing those cloth masks. Um, we don't recommend, um, like, the bandana early on that was used. CDC came out and said, don't wear a bandana. It needs to have three-ply. You need to have the right kind of mask. It needs to be close-fitting, that sort of thing. Um, but again, you need to have everyone in the classroom uh, wear a mask to make it really effective, including the teacher. We actually had a CDC report come out recently where one teacher was infectious. She was not consistently wearing a mask. The kids were not wearing a mask. And she infected, I think, 12 of 27 of the children in her classroom. Was it a um, southern just, state? Uh I uh, I'd have to double check. It might be. I can double check and see. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Link, I'm yeah. not surprised. <laughs> yeah, but that's the problem that we're seeing is again it, it became more of a, a political divide rather than focusing mm. on science. Mm. And what we know now that elderly people are most affected by this is is it really mostly elderly or what what is there any other other something that may be more affected than by COVID? 
So we've definitely seen a higher mortality rate among the elderly, but we've had, we've even had children die here in the U.S. from COVID. And so just because you're younger doesn't mean you're guaranteed to be mm. safe from it. Obviously, if you have other um, underlying health conditions, you're more likely to suffer worse consequences from COVID, but we've had some perfectly healthy adults die from COVID, unfortunately. And so we can't say anyone is guaranteed to get COVID and get over it. You just don't know. And that's another one of those things with COVID where there are no guarantees. And so that's why everyone should get vaccinated. Even if you're a healthy young adult and you don't think you'll have any problems with it, you should still go ahead and get vaccinated. Here in the U.S., we still don't have great vaccination rates. Other countries have done a much a uh, much better job getting everyone vaccinated who's eligible. What do you think about Joe Biden's approach to getting the U.S. vaccinated? Compared to- um, now that we've got the um, vaccines under regular use and not just emergency use authorization, we're seeing more and more mandates come out. Um, today, it's expected that he will announce all federal employees and all contractors with the federal government must be vaccinated. Um, I think we're at the point where we need to have mandates because we've got we've had lots of opportunity for people to get vaccinated and people aren't getting vaccinated. So I think at this point, mandates are probably the best way to get us over that hurdle so we can get out of the pandemic. And I mean, we use um, mandates all the time for other school vaccinations and we've had enough COVID vaccinations out there to know they're safe. So at that point, it's just the logical next step. Is there any is there any vaccination that you shouldn't vaccines that you shouldn't take that's not really as effective as others? Like yeah, let's say, I'm not one to put it down, but when Johnson Johnson gave you give you blood can't give you blood clot, what is the chances? And is there anyone you shouldn't take at all? And so right now, all of the vaccines that are approved for use in the U.S., I would say they're fine to take for most people. If you have any of your own personal health concerns about which vaccine to take, I encourage you to talk with your own physician because everyone's a little bit different depending on your health history, especially if you've had heart issues or something like that, your doctor might recommend one vaccine over another. Um, I myself got vaccinated um, early on just because the contact tracing work that we're doing, I've not had any issues and I can say most people haven't had any issues with the vaccine, but that is being studied on a regular basis. And that's why I'm confident in saying for most people, the vaccine is completely safe. And that, then that makes me want to talk about the anti-vaxxers. What, what, how, do they ruin for everyone else? And how? Do, what is your thoughts on those who don't believe COVID exists? And there's almost impossible not to know anyone that has been, has been affected by this. Everyone probably knows somebody who has had COVID and that has been affected by this. So what, so if, how, if, how do you see What do you think about those? Unfortunately, the anti-vaxxers are just sending the wrong message and they're sending the message that can hurt all of us. And so even before COVID, we've always had a history of, you know, a certain population kind of being anti-vaccine or vaccine hesitant. But the problem that we've seen with COVID is some of those anti-vax groups have sent a lot of misinformation out through social media. And as we've seen, that spread so quickly. Um, And so, again, just explaining the science behind the vaccine, explaining how it's not a new vaccine, taking the time for providers to talk with their patients. That's how we're going to overcome that hurdle and really focusing on what is true versus what is fake information. I mean, we just have so much fake information, not just about COVID, but about all sorts of things out there. We need to train our students and our kids to be better at at spotting fake information as well. So and vaccine doesn't really give you autism, right? Has there Correct, been any yeah. case that at all to, pro- to provide with this evidence? 
Uh, there have been numerous studies done showing that vaccine does not cause autism, and the the doctor who that actually that's the main the main the reason, right? I shouldn't get the vaccine. I don't want my kids or me to get autism, etc., etc. Right. I think that is what spurred a lot of this anti-vax movement was um, Andrew Wakefield with some of his uh, misinformation that he shared. But his, you know, medical license has been stripped and um, he's not allowed to do a lot of the kind of work that he used to do that spread a lot of this information. Um, Unfortunately, that hasn't reached everyone. They don't they're not aware of just how false that information was. It was purpose purposefully falsified. But unfortunately, once that rumor got out there, it really spread and and it kind of took wings. But no, there have been numerous studies showing that vaccines do not cause autism. And so you don't have to be worried about that. Also, vaccines do not affect fertility. Um, It's fine for breastfeeding women to go ahead and get vaccinated. And it's really great for pregnant women to get vaccinated because that way that baby is born with some protection because we're not going to have vaccines. Oh, so it does. So it affects the babies as well. If if you're pregnant and that you get a vaccine, the baby will still be trying to be vaccinated as well. Yes. Yep. Really? So that's a great reason to go ahead and get vaccinated, um, you know, if you're if you find yourself pregnant now and you're not vaccinated, go ahead and get vaccinated. Um, the American physicians, all of the medical associations, are highly recommending pregnant women go ahead and get vaccinated. Hmm. I always say that the vaccine can't make me any dumber than I already am. <laughs> can make what you smarter because you can live longer. You can learn more. What 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 you got to lose, right? Exactly. And let's talk about life during lockdown. How. How has life been for most of us? Like, of course, we live during it, so we wouldn't know. But, like, in general, has not a lot of celebrities has compared this to prison? And is that kind of strong? What do you think? How do, what is most people's reaction when they heard about lockdown and life during lockdown? So here in the U.S., um, I think people were just stunned at how quickly everything shut down. I know I'm in Indiana, and we're a big basketball state. And the fact that they were canceling basketball games was the first clue that this was really a big deal because I've never seen anyone cancel basketball games here in Indiana. That's our big sport. Um, And so when things shut down, um, you know, there were some silver linings to all of that. Some families reported being able to enjoy spending more time with their families. Um, But a big outcome of this was that it really highlighted the gap between the haves and the have nots. And so those people who work the minimum wage jobs, who still worked in the restaurants and the grocery stores, who still needed to go into work. Yeah, um, I want to, speaking of that, how has, how was lockdown affecting local businesses in this sense? So here in the U.S., a lot of restaurants closed. You weren't allowed to have any indoor dining. Um, some restaurants closed for a number of weeks or a number of months. Some were able to switch to offer carryout service, but they still let go a lot of their staff, unfortunately. So a lot of people lost their jobs. Um, you know, jobs like Uber and Lyft, you know, the ride sharing services, those jobs Mm. just disappeared. People just weren't traveling. Um, So we saw a lot of jobs kind of go away. They are coming back now here in the U.S. But again, it really highlighted the big gaps. And so like grocery store workers still had to work. They were considered essential workers here in the U.S. Um, And we kept a lot of things open that I think maybe they didn't keep open in other countries, like home Mm. improvement stores were open. So here in the U.S., everyone worked on their house. They did all sorts of home improvements um, during uh, 2020. But again, it really highlights the gap between um, the working poor and everyone else in the country. But even the porn porn industry prospered quite well during lockdown. 
Oh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm not as aware of that one. Well, uh, so yeah, I, 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 we had this local restaurant here in where I'm from. We, we live in the countryside, and people have actually been quite supportive of making sure that the business survived, that it didn't go bankrupt during when it was locked down. And we we went to support the local restaurant just to make sure that it was open. It wasn't you weren't allowed to dine inside, but you were. We just took takeaway in order to support the restaurants. That's what we did too. Yeah. We went to all of our favorite like mom and pop restaurants, you know, not, not the chain restaurants. We were trying to help like the mm. local places. Yeah. And we probably, that was probably my excuse to not cook too often, but that, that's what we did too, to try and support those businesses to keep them going. And I want to, we talked a little bit about this again, but I want to go in depth about vaccination and how, how did we start and how do you go on about creating a vaccine? like this was there were very worried that we might not even get a vaccine at all i gotta say this um was one of the pleasant surprises of how everyone came together around the world to come up with these vaccines and so the technology behind the mrna vaccines that actually that research started back in the 80s so there was a researcher who had that idea but had to work to get funding to kind of explore it and then in the 90s they were able to use mrna work um, among mice first. And so there's been a lot of research over the years to look at MRA and mRNA vaccines for HIV specifically. Um, and actually when COVID happened, a lot of work was being done on a vaccine for influenza with mRNA vaccines. And so this wasn't new. I think that's one thing we need to stress too. It's not like this happened overnight. People have been working on this for decades. Now these vaccines are the first time they've been used in humans now with COVID. But again, we've got years and years of research that went into this, but it's great to see how the country, all the different countries came together. We put so much money and effort into this. I feel like if we all came together and looked at tuberculosis or HIV the same way, I think we could overcome those diseases as well. It's just we did it this time with COVID because the whole world was affected all at once and and mortality was so high. Um, So I'm hoping we're we're taking some of the research and lessons learned from COVID and we will apply that to tuberculosis and HIV and other diseases going forward. Do you think that it's probably not somewhere to say, but do you think that COVID scientifically has done health in a better way that we now will look instead of working against each other that we're going to prosper more than you that we will work more together scientifically and medically i definitely i definitely hope that will be an outcome of this um again i talked earlier about sharing data and and information i think we're we can just all help the world together if we just share more of that on a regular basis so it's not a competitive mode that we're in um, a collaboration mode going forward with all diseases. And um, something that I wanted, I know you're not working with the, with the environment, but that's uh, when, when the world shut down last year, travel was almost banned and absolute on, travel for only absolute necessary was allowed. So how, do, do you think it's affected the environment a bit as well, or do you think it will go up? once we start traveling again and once we go back to normal if there will be normal after this i i think we'll get back to a normal eventually and here in the u.s people are traveling a lot more even planes now people are not separated or spaced out on planes um we do have a federal mandate that anytime you're on mass transit you have to wear a mask so plane trains um, bus systems you all have to wear a mask um, which is great. And I think we should really do that across more parts of the U.S. to 
to keep the mask use up. Um, as far as travel, I know some people who are higher risk, you still have to take that, um, your own personal um, account into deciding whether or not you can travel. And so I myself, I've got an unvaccinated 11 year old. He's not eligible to get the vaccine here yet in the US. So we're not traveling um, by plane yet. Uh, with him just because we're still concerned about him possibly getting COVID. And so uh, we probably won't do that until he's vaccinated. But if someone else has um, a family where everyone's vaccinated, they're all good about wearing a mask, you can take a direct flight, that sort of thing. Uh, travel can be safe is, is what we're seeing. Travel itself is not um, connected to a lot of transmission. It's just, again, as a parent, I would feel better if, if that last kiddo were vaccinated. And um- I want to ask about this. You mentioned babies can be vaccinated if the mother who's pregnant is vaccinated as well. But so, but how young can we go now from vaccination? How young? Because in here we started on the 15-year-olds. Now we're done with my, with my, those my age. Most most of us are finished by now, with 26, 27. So how young can we go with this vaccine? Uh, here in the U.S., we can only go down to 12, and that's just with the Pfizer vaccine. Um, I know right now both Moderna and Pfizer are looking at uh, vaccines for children um, in the 5 to 11 range. So here in the U.S., we're hoping to have that group um, approved sometime late fall, early winter. So I'm hoping before the end of 2021 that my son can at least get his first dose then. Um, before we we end the year it's probably going to be you know next spring before we get most of the kids vaccinated that's why I really see this winter kind of as that last hurdle we've got to get through we've got to get through winter with you know the kids with COVID but also flu flu season will typically starts here in the U.S. around October so we need to make sure that we're keeping everyone um, safe from flu and COVID at the same time. Um what do you think we ever will go back to normal that we will get rid of this like the Spanish flu or do you think that uh, it will always be around? So I don't think we're going to eradicate it. What we typically see with these outbreaks is um, after a certain point, people get exposed enough either through vaccination or through um, natural immunity from getting the disease that our bodies kind of learn uh, what the de- what the virus is and we have milder waves of the disease. So this COVID, this coronavirus will probably become like the other coronaviruses we encounter on a regular basis. Um, The common cold is a coronavirus. So that's what that will probably become. If you think about the 1918 flu, Mm -hmm. that was an H1N1 influenza and that circulates today. So typically it's just a a more mild flu that we see. And so we will get to that point. Um, I do think we need to get past this winter. I think this winter could be hard again. Do we still have traces of Spanish flu around? Uh, we still have H1N1, and so it just changes over years. So, I mean, that's still kind of a remnant of um, the 1918 flu. And that's what happens a lot of times with viruses. Eventually, you just start to see milder cases of a virus once it's been introduced to enough of the population. Um, there, in Svalbard, there is some bodies in the gray, gray where they had the Spanish flu and there's been talk about digging them up and studying the Spanish flu, but there's also a risk of an outbreak. Would this be a good idea in order to understand further, further future pandemics and this pandemic, this 
they've them up in, but it's what is the risk that it would spread? It's been they've been in the grave for hundreds of years now, but is there still a risk that the Spanish flu might come back if you do this? Um, actually, that's already been done, and so bodies have been taken out of the permafrost um, and studied, and so that's why we know what we do know about the 1918 flu um, virus itself. And so that can be done in a safe enough manner. We know how to do that. And so I'm not concerned about that. I could actually send you a couple of links to, a, to yeah. books that talk about that. It's pretty fascinating. You would like that being a history buff. And hmm. um, please do. And uh, so now we talked about back to normality, but I want to talk about travel a little bit because now things open up again and I'm considering going to Germany later this year in November, perhaps. Should I feel guilty for traveling? Should I feel... I'm fully vaccinated. My entire family is now fully vaccinated. Neither my mother, my brother, my father. Um, but should I still feel a little bit guilty that I might be affectionate for traveling? Or should, should I not be as worried? We talked about this before we recorded. You sent me a mail about this. But for those, those here who are listening... Should we be worried to feel a little bit guilty about traveling that we might spread, even, even if we are fully vaccinated, how safe is, is it to still travel? So we have seen some breakthrough cases. We don't know enough yet to know if these breakthrough cases spread COVID as much as an unvaccinated person. We would assume not. Um, but it is possible that a, a vaccinated person could still spread COVID is what we're seeing. Um it's great that you guys are all vaccinated. You can take the right steps to make sure that you guys are less likely to spread it. So again, make sure you're masking up anytime you're in crowds, anytime you're indoors, anytime you're traveling is what I would recommend. Um, and make sure you're following all of the local guidance uh, wherever you are traveling. So some places have more restrictions than maybe your home country. So take a look at that before you travel. So that's what I would recommend. Um, many parts of the world are trying to get back to normal. The economies really depend on a lot of travel, depending on what country you're looking at. So I wouldn't say you have to feel guilty, but um, do take care of yourself and just think about others as you're traveling. Make sure you're taking all of those right precautions. And would it be kind of a good idea to quarantine yourself on your back a little bit for a little bit, even though you're still like you're still fully vaccinated? Is it a good idea to maybe just stay in your inside for a few days just to make sure when you come back from travel? It definitely wouldn't hurt, especially with the variants. I mean, who knows what variant is out there right now? Um, if you're able to do that, I would not discourage it. I know not everyone is in a position where they can stay home for a few extra days after they return from vacation, um, but it's not going to hurt anything if you do have that ability to do so. When can we expect long distance travels like South America, Asia, or Australia to come back? Do you have an idea of, of this? I would think that won't happen until, you know, probably next summer. Again, we need um, more vaccines out there, vaccines available to, you know, third world countries where we haven't had as much vaccine available yet. Um, some vaccines are still vaccinating right now, you know, like the middle age group, and they haven't even gone down to the 20s and 30s yet. So we need to get more vaccine out there to other countries, not just um, the first world countries. But also, we still need vaccines to out the kids. Again, here in the U.S., about a third of all the cases we're seeing are in that kindergarten through 12th grade age group. And so once we brought all those kids back together, they definitely started spreading COVID. So we need to get those kids vaccinated because, you know, kids, kids spread diseases just like adults do. So we need to have that population protected. 
what about the poorest regions of Africa where they don't have as much accessibility as we do? What should we, what can we expect there? To, they will stay longer for years to come in the poorest rural areas in Africa and the third world countries in the world. The pandemic stay longer there. I have to admit, I'm not as familiar with um, the current vaccination status or uh, COVID case count um, in that part of the world, but I can say um, there have been some waves there, but they haven't been as quite as bad uh, spreading people out. Again, in the rural areas, we've seen those waves be a little bit slower. It's in the urban areas that we're more concerned about, but that's where other countries who have more resources um, should take that humanitarian approach and sharing the vaccine. So if you've got more than enough vaccine than you need for your country, we definitely need to share with the other, the other countries. Again, it's not a super simple thing to do. You know, refrigeration of vaccine is an issue sometimes when you go into some of these areas. And so it might be possible that we need some new vaccines for those areas that don't require the refrigeration. Now, I believe North Korea must have done a killer job during COVID, right? Excuse me? North North Korea must have done a killer job during COVID. That they, um, I saw that they uh, uh, declined to take vaccine from one of the countries offering mm-hmm. vaccine. So I, you know, that's a country that doesn't share a lot of communication yeah. in or out. So I'm not really sure what's happening with COVID. Unfortunately, there. I mean, uh, that was just a joke. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and uh, hopefully, we we got some more information about COVID and what's in store for us in the future. And uh, do you, before you go, do you have anything you wish to promote and a link you wish me to put in the description or, or social media you wish to share that where people can talk, contact you from? Sure. If anyone's interested in getting their um master's in public health online uh, through Indiana University. I can send you a couple of links for that. And I'll yeah. send you a couple of links for the books about the 1918 influenza pandemic as well. Because like you said, history sometimes does repeat itself and that'll be an interesting read for you. Mm, definitely. And uh, thank you for coming. If thank you. you. Liked, and if you like this podcast, please like, share and subscribe. We are available on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you can find us. On social media, we are on Instagram under world.h12. My name is Alan. Next week, we will take a look at the Ottoman Empire, and we will take a look at Sultan Salim, the Grim, which will be a fascinating episode. Thank you so much for coming. This has been world.h12, and I'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.